0: Well, good morning to each and every one of you here in the auditorium and out there in the gymnasium and also online. We're so glad you're joining with us today. I had to say in the uh, earlier service when Armand was talking about, surely you don't think he could be a grandpa. I knew he was a grandpa, but what surprised me is he's married to a woman who's a grandma and she looks more like she's 35 than a grandma, you know, so, but uh I thought Steve, uh, and I didn't know this until uh, the first service, but Steve's prayer uh, just set the whole tone uh, for the service, and uh, so thankful for that, for the scriptures he shared as well. We've been in a uh, series on family matters, and this is the third week we're looking at another couple, having seen Adam and Eve and Abraham and Sarah. And today, if you have a Bible and you'd like to open your Bibles to Genesis 24, uh, that's where we're going to start with Isaac and Rebecca. But little Susie was only four years old, just was in preschool, and she was all excited because for the first time in her life, she heard the story of Snow White, and she just couldn't wait to talk to her mom After her school time. So after she told her mom about the arrival of Prince Charming on the white horse. And then kissing Snow White back to life again. She loudly exclaimed. And do you know what happened next mom? And of course mom was quick to reply. She said I certainly do. She said they lived happily forevermore. And Susie got a frown on her face. She says no. They got married. Uh, somehow with Susie, living happily forevermore and getting married are two separate things. That's true, they are in many cases. Wasn't meant to be that way, but it often happens. So we asked the question today on a marriage that went sour. What makes a marriage go sour? Especially when you consider if you have a really good beginning. Especially if you have a Christian foundation and you have a happy beginning, a sweet beginning. What makes a marriage go sour? Isaac was the son of promise. His birth was the highlight of the great, exciting walk of faith we saw last week with Abraham and Sarah. God had told Abraham, I'm Going to make a, your name great, I'm going to make a great nation, Israel. And in you and your seed, all families of the earth will be blessed as Messiah will come through that line, our Redeemer. When you look at Isaac in the Scripture, and it came to me as I was thinking this, that he's the son of a great man and the father of a great man. But he was kind of a nobody in a lot of ways. Don't read a lot about him. But what you do read is that he was a dutiful man. He was very contemplative, meditative, And he was never disobedient uh, to his parents. Even when being willing to be offered up on the altar, as we saw that challenge last week with Abraham on Mount Moriah, he willingly was as a type of Christ to give his life on the altar. Well, Abraham, knowing that he's been given that promise and now passed down to Isaac, Isaac now knows of his seed is going to be the one to out of which that great nation is going to come and the Messiah is going to come. He needed a wife in order to have a son. And so Abraham now, after three years of mourning, him and Isaac mourning for the death of Sarah, Isaac's mom, Abraham's wife, he now realized he needs to make plans to find a wife for his son. Now keep in mind, God had told Abraham that in Isaac, your seed shall be blessed. So it couldn't be any other son. Couldn't been Ishmael, couldn't be... It had to be Isaac. And if Isaac's going to be the seed, then he's got to have a son. So Abraham takes things into uh, matters, as was the custom. He has a, uh, what we'd call a chief steward, uh, the head of the household. Uh, his name is Eleazar. His name comes out later, not in our text today. But he, uh, if... If Abraham did not have a son, Eleazar would have inherited everything. But Eleazar is his trusted servant, and so he's going to charge him to go to a certain place and find a wife for his son Isaac. Now, again, we don't choose the spouse for our children like they did in that culture. But nevertheless, Genesis 24 is guidelines, principles for us that we want to still instill in our children and our grandchildren. Grandparents, what a great influence you can have. And the parents, of course, as well. And the Holy Spirit is our faithful guide. And with the Bible is our GPS. So perhaps as Christians, knowing his will in this matter of getting married is possibly the most important decision we make in life next to trusting Christ as our personal Savior. I know a lot of couples, and I could go back over 50 years, 55, 60 years. I know a lot of couples in my lifetime that have used deception in order to get married, in order to woo the husband or the wife to yourself. Uh, even h- seemingly harmless things like uh, Christianmatch.com or whatever it is. And I'm thinking in mirror, oh, my wife knows of whom I speak. That we will not divulge but it's a couple that met on the one of the internet dating sites for Christians and you have to fill out a profile that tells you a little bit about yourself and about the people you're you're looking at and the man put down he loved classical music and opera now why would he do that probably thinking you know most women think I would be a pretty cool husband you know he loves classical music and opera I know the man, he wouldn't know Bach or Beethoven's name if you wrote it down for him, okay? His favorite musicians were Willie Nelson and Waylon Jennings. Does that tell you something? Now, uh, so anyway, but that's what he puts on the profile. Now, we can't let the wife off the hook. She put down that she loves to play golf. Why would you put something like that down? If it weren't true, especially. Well, golfers are usually, they call it a gentleman's game. Now, what wife doesn't want to have a gentleman for a husband? And also, if you're going to golf, you got to have a little bit of money anyway, because it's not an inexpensive game. But um, they both used to now they're doing great today, but we often laugh about this when we're together with them, about how they use this kind of little ploy here to get the attention uh, of the other person. I think my favorite story, and I was going to uh, nix this because no one laughed when I told this story. I don't know if it's true or not, but you're, you're supposed to laugh. Uh, now, you're, you're a lot smarter and brighter than the 830, and you're much better looking than the 830 congregation, okay? So you laugh at then Even if you don't catch it, you laugh. Are you with me? Fair enough? Okay. So it's, it's old men, when I say old men, uh, my age and older. Okay, so they're in the late 70s and on through their 80s and through the late 80s. And they got together every... Uh, a week. I saw a group like this out at the Dunkin' Donuts in Yarmouth when my wife would get her eye health center thing done. But anyway, uh, these men get together and they'd meet every week, same time, at the Dunkin' Donuts. And they'd get their coffee, their donuts, or whatever. And uh, uh, they would just kind of go over the last week and enjoy each other's company and tell jokes and have fun. And then one day, Joe. Now, Joe is 82 years old. Okay, 82. Joe is by far richer has more money than all the other men put together. I mean, he's got so much money, he doesn't know what, what in the world to do with it. And, uh, but anyway, they're having a good time talking. And all of a sudden, one day, one week, Joe walks into the Duncan at the meeting. And when the guys look up, uh, two of them lost their teeth. We looked up, and there's Joe with the most gorgeous 25-year-old-looking blonde on his right arm walking in. And they are, t- the who in the world is this? So Joe comes over, he says, now I've got a surprise for you, and I want to introduce you to this woman, Goldie, I I think it was short for gold digger, a Goldie uh, uh, who we got married this week. Well, the guys just about fell out of their chairs. Well, what do you say, you know? So after a few minutes, Goldie decides to excuse herself. She goes to the restroom, and the guy says, okay, Joe, come on. How in the world did you get her? He says it was easy. I told her I was 98 years old. That's when you laugh. (laughs) You are as dense as the 830 group. That's all right. It it kind of trickles out. Maybe it'll trickle out to the uh, fellowship. I should have kept that one out too. Okay. Now, the point is this. Whether it's matchmakers or this, don't be deceptive. Okay, it's going to carry through the marriage, and it's going to cause a lot of conflicts and problems for the most part. Now, we're going to try to cover three chapters this morning, which is a tremendous challenge. So we can't read all the verses, okay? But I want to start us out by reading Genesis chapter 24, verses 1 to 9. It'll be on the screen, or you can follow in your Bible. Now, Abraham was old, well advanced in years, and the Lord had blessed Abraham in all things. And Abraham said to his servant, the oldest of the household, who had charge of all that he had, Put your hand under my thigh, that I may make you swear by the Lord, the God of heaven and the God of earth, that you will not take a wife for my son from the daughter of the Canaanites, among whom I dwell, but will go to my country and to my kindred and take a wife for my son Isaac. The servant said, Perhaps the woman may not be willing to follow me to this land. Must I then take your son back to the land from which you came? That would be Ur of the Chaldees. But if a woman is not willing to follow you, then you'll be free from this oath of mine. Only you must not take my son back uh, from back there. So the servant put his hand under the thigh of Abraham, his master, and he swore to him concerning this matter. Now, let's look here at, first of all, what I call the sweet beginning of Isaac and Rebekah's marriage. Uh, So Abraham now calls for his senior uh, servant, Eleazar, uh, the steward of his household, and he made him swear. And he made him swear, Genesis uh, 24, 3 and 4, he would not choose a wife for Isaac from the Canaanites, nor from his former home, Ur of the Chaldees. Now what I want you to notice here is simply this. I'm going to give you five words that will, will give us a little guideline on principles we want to establish and implement into the lives of our children and grandchildren. And that is the first word is place the word place. So it's important you go to the right place to find the right person. Now in Abraham's case, the Canaanites were a vile race uh, of people. They were cursed by God and they were doomed by God. Those back in Ur, the Chaldees, were no better. So Abraham knew the place that he would be able to find a woman who might know the true and living God who would be the right spouse for his son Isaac, is up in Haran. Why Haran? Because remember when Abraham left Ur the Chaldees, he took his families with him, and they went down there. Now it's been, get this, since we met Lazarus, it's been 65 years since they moved from Haran down to Canaan. So in 65 years, children are born, grandchildren are born, even possibly a great-grandchildren. So he knew that lineage would be the place where uh, the servant might find a a person, a young lady who believed in the one and true God. And so place becomes uh, a major principle when it comes to a starting point for believers. And I can only say to you that God has a person, I think, in mind for you if you're a young person and it's His will for you to get married. But you're going to find that person in the right place. You're not going to find that person in a place, for the name of God, it's blasphemed. Where it is filled with rioting, drunkenness, immorality. It's going to be found in a place like a Bible college, a Christian university. You go to a secular university, as a Christian, you get involved with navigators, crew, or uh, uh, intervarsity. And that's where you find t- in a church. And so you got to make sure you go to the right place where God's people are gathering, and uh, that's how you find the right person. I love the words of Solomon when he said of his wife in Song of Solomon chapter 1 verse 9, he says, I have compared thee, O my love, to a company of horses in Pharaoh's chariots. Now what in the world does he mean? He's certainly not comparing his wife to a horse, so that's not the point. The point is, what good is a chariot without a horse? Do you get it? So I've compared the O my love, to a company of uh, horses and Pharaoh's chariots. And it's what we've seen for the last two weeks, how there is a complimenting that takes place. It's almost like uh, it, when, when God brings the right spouse into your life, it compliments you. And he makes up for your deficiencies, and she makes up for his, and they become a one. So a principle you want to uh, establish in the life of young people that we've tried to do for years, for 52 years in the life of our children. And we started literally the, the time that they were conceived, we began praying for this. And the thing you want to tell them is that it's important to marry the, uh, not only a Christian, but it's important to marry the right Christian. And if you can serve the Lord better by being single than you can by marrying that person, you have no business getting married. So that the reason you get married, you yeah, bear children, etc. But the main reason is I can serve the Lord better with this person as my spouse than I can serve uh, the Lord as a single person. Now look at the second guideline. It's the word uh, providence. So the old servant begins the toilsome trip. He's going to the vicinity of Haran, the city. It's about 500 miles away up north. And it's where Abraham's brother had remained after Abraham migrated down to Canaan 65 years ago. So Abraham had assured the servant of the Lord that the angel of God would go before him. And with that sense of divine direction, he stops at a well in the town of Nahor. Why did he stop in the city of Nahor? Because he knew that was the name of Abraham's brother, and he knew there, there would be many descendants uh, who would love the living uh, and the true God. Now, keep in mind also these great verses that are encouragement here. Abraham assured Eleazar that the Lord would providentially direct his steps in verse 7, where he says, he will send his angel before you. That's a promise. Indeed, his own testimony, Eleazar, at the end of the uh, encounter in verse 27, he speaks to this truth, and what does he say? The Lord has led me. So the most important thing for the child of God that we want to instill in our children, from the moment they're born, we instill this, that the most important thing for you to do is to do the will of God. God's got a plan for you. God has a perfect will for you. And it's a good plan. And it's not to bring harm to you. It's to bless you and to bless your life. And so we want to instill them to know the will of God is the greatest knowledge to do. The will of God uh, is the greatest thing we can do in life. But while we trust his providential sovereign care and direction, it doesn't relinquish the responsibility you and I have or any other uh, believer has to walk with him daily, to keep in tune with him, to meet with him daily, to walk in the will of God. And uh, that's what that's what he says, and he's praying for God's direction. And what he says in verse twelve, and he said, verse twelve, "O Lord God of my master Abraham, please grant me success today and show steadfast love uh, to my master Abraham." That brings us to the third principle, uh, which is prayer. Now, part of a providential thinking that was at Abraham's name—a uh, part was that he threw out a fleece. I don't recommend you throw out fleeces. That's between you and God. But he threw out a fleece. It was a common thing, like casting lots in the Old Testament. And that fleece was this. When I get up there to Nahor, and I come to a well, you know, I'm going to ask the lady who comes out, whoever she is, please give me a drink. And not only that, I'm not going to ask her this, but then she will bring water to my ten camels. They can drink a lot of water, by the way. And sure enough, when Rebecca comes out, he asks her, may I have a drink? She says, you may. And then she says, and I'll what? Give water to your ten camels. So it's all part of God's providential plan, but it also comes right under the area of prayer as well. Because the key here is what? <clears throat> Praying that the will of God will be done on earth, even as it is in heaven. In other words, it'll be God's will. I love the words of Ruth Graham, the uh, wife of Billy Graham for many years. She once said this, if God had answered every prayer of mine, I would have married the wrong man seven times. Uh, So maybe you've been through that a little bit too. You know, you get involved with somebody, your emotions kind of go you know, a little bit haywire, etc. And you say, well, well, surely this is it. This is the right person. And then all of sudden God, goes, nah, that's not the right person. Something happens or whatever. But then when the right person comes along, there's assurance in the heart as you have prayed. Even as Eliezer El- 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 prayed that God would bring that woman, he put that fleece out, and then that confirmed it in his own writing. By the way, Charlie Shedd, who wrote Letters to Karen, he writes this. He says, marriage is not so much finding the right person. I love this. As being the right person, not so much finding the right person, it's being the right person, so you seek God and you let God seek you a mate, and remember it's always better to want what you don't have than to have what you don't want, okay, so there's nothing wrong with waiting. you wait on the lord and and you let him seek you a mate, but all the time. What you're doing as parents from the time they're born, you're instilling in them that God is preparing you and God is preparing someone else. Probably if it's God's will you to get married, he's preparing you and he's preparing. And the key is to be the right person. The right person, of course, is the person that uh, does the will of God and loves uh, the Lord. Now, before the servant gets even a amen to his prayer, Eleazar. God had the answer on the way. Why? Rebecca, the granddaughter of Abraham's brother, came out with her jar on her shoulder full of water. And uh, Scripture says, by the way, also, that she was beautiful. And it adds this, she was beautiful and a virgin. Now, listen, I don't want to make anyone feel uncomfortable here. Neither do I want to make anyone feel guilty here. Because sometimes we do things and once they're done, we can't erase what was done. But what we can do is when we've done something wrong, we can confess it to God. And God is faithful to cleanse us from all sin. And we can be the pure man, woman of God he wants us to be. But the point is this. You're raising children from child. We raised our girls. I'm not saying we're perfect. Don't, don't get me that. I, I'm not saying that. But I'm just saying we instilled in them the idea of moral purity. I took them out on dates when they were of predating age. We talked about what. How far do you go on a date with them? How far will you go? What are the biblical guidelines? I'd give them biblical texts, and we'd go out on a dinner date, and we would talk about these things. Often choices are made before you're ever in the situation. You set your standards. You say this is what I do, what I won't do, and God makes it a point here to let us know of the purity of Rebecca. May I say to you, young men and women? One of the greatest gifts you can ever give your spouse on your wedding night is your purity. Now if you lost it, you lost it. But you can confess it and deal with it. But it's one of the greatest gifts. And in this day and age, I'll just make a frank statement you can disagree with and you might be right. I think it's almost impossible to be a morally pure person apart from being filled with the Holy Spirit. There's just too much pressure all around us. Well... Servant found out she's granddaughter of Abraham's brother. He bows his head, and well, here he goes again, worshiping God. Genesis 24, 27. Blessed be the Lord, the God of my master Abraham, who has not forsaken his steadfast love and his faithfulness toward my master. As for me, the Lord has led me in the way to the house of my master's kinsmen." It becomes obvious from the outset. There's a matchmaker here. It's not Eliezer, and it's not Abraham, and it's not Isaac. The matchmaker is God himself. There's no human manipulation. There's no pressure whatsoever. There's no deceit. Brings us to fourth one, where we've been placed, providence, prayer. Now we come to parents. When the servant related to uh, Rebekah's family the indication of God's guidance, her brother and her father said this in Genesis 24, 50. The thing has come from the Lord. How powerful is that? The thing has come from the Lord. I cannot emphasize how strong I feel about this principle. Conflicts with in-laws often originate when young people get married without the sanction and blessing of their parents. Every young man here, if you're seriously considering you want this young lady to marry you, you go to her dad. You meet with him, man to man. And you ask him for permission to ask his daughter to marry you. And if he doesn't give it, you have no business getting married. Parental blessing is such a key. You'll find it throughout the scriptures. Let me say a further point here for, well, not just young person, any person who's in the dating mode. And that is simply this. If the person you're dating or your friend ever attempts to try to get you to do something that you know is contrary to your standards, or if that person ever tries to get you to drive, to drive a wedge between you and your family, that person is to be avoided like the plague. Okay? That's immediate scratch off right there. Because a godly person, will always What's a godly person do to you? I don't care if you're single, if you're married, or who you are. He is always pushing you in the right sense. He's motivating you to go to second base as a Christian to always climb higher, to even be more holy, to be more a servant of God. It's a carnal person that tries to drag you down, try to drag you backwards, try to instill some things in there that's going to cause conflict. This is a beautiful thing. How beautiful it is. Rebecca, Eleazar, Laban, and Nahor read the end of the chapter. They're all rejoicing together. Let's go to the fifth principle, which is peace. So we've been to place, providence, prayer, parents, and now peace. Because lest it appear, uh, and some have the concept that in the Old Testament, the parents just arranged the wedding and the person didn't have anything to say about it. Notice here, lest it appear that Rebecca had nothing to say in the matter. Look at verses 57 to 61. I've just chosen a few out. Let us call the young woman and ask her. And they called Rebecca and said to her, will you go with this man? She said, I'll go. And they blessed Rebecca. Then Rebekah and her young woman arose and rode on the camels, followed the man. Thus the servant took Rebekah and he went on his way. That's incredible. Think of this character and walk with God and person of faith that Rebekah was. She's going to leave her home and family. By the way, as a side note, she never sees him again. She's leaving, she'll never see him again the rest of her life. Number two, she's going to travel 500 miles on Camelback. Month's trip. With a man she had never met before that day. Eleazar. To marry a man she has yet to meet. I would kind of call that a step of faith, wouldn't you? I mean, that's a leap of faith. She was really something else. What motivated her to go? The only answer I have it was the assurance that of God's sovereign direction that motivated the decision, revealed that courage and trust. And off over five hundred miles she goes. And when they finally get down uh, back back home, back to Isaac's home, uh, Isaac's uh, out meditating uh, in the field, and then he's called in, and all the party is there, and he's told about the fact that Eleazar and the group had brought this bride back for him. And so we read in Genesis 24, 67, then Isaac brought her into the tent of Sarah, his mother, and he took Rebecca and she became his wife and he loved her. Tender words, he loved her. Now wait a minute, he hadn't even met her. And he loved her. They hadn't dated, hadn't developed an emotional relationship. And he loved her. Why? Love is an action not an emotion. He chose to love her, and he did. It's a sweet beginning. I wish I could close the message, and bro, you do too. But it goes on because it doesn't end there. It goes into what I call sour decline. I'm going to move quickly here. If I am correct that there was a decline in their marriage, which I hate to say, then we want to know what caused the decline if what I'm saying is true. I'm not positive what I'm saying is true. So you study for yourself and either confirm it or reject it. It's a sour decline. And I put down three reasons why it may have come. Number one was lack of children. Lack of children. That may have been one problem that caused the sour decline. Now, having children is important because God tells us to replenish, multiply. And my heart goes out to young ladies Who have a heart's desire to have children, but they're infer they can't have children, they go through infertility. We had it with our older daughter for seven years. I never understood it until my daughter and I had dinner together. And it was a eye-awakening time for me. I was so oblivious. I was out in left field somewhere as a man. You know, you have children, you don't have children, God's will, not God's will, open the womb, close the womb. No, no, no. There's much more involved than that. And it helped me a great deal to learn. What a woman goes through, though I still don't. Obviously, I'm not a. Wo- I don't understand it all. But as much as that might hurt today, if when you want a child so bad and and you have infertility, as much as that may hurt today, back in that day, it was a, a sign of a curse. It was a sign that God's curse was upon you. So it wasn't just you can't have children, physical problem. It's that God was judging. God was cursing you. Now when you, when you. Multiply that with the fact that Isaac is in thee shall thy seed be blessed. Isaac was promised he will have to have a son in order for the Abrahamic covenant to be fulfilled. What went on at that time? Was there any blame given? Was there any judging? I don't know. I do know this, if I compare Genesis 25, 20 with 25, 26, verses 20 and 26, Isaac was 40 years old when he got married. He was 60 years old when his first child was born. You don't have to be a rocket scientist. 40, 60, 20 years of waiting. That's a long time. That is a long time to wait. And you wonder what took place in those 20 years. And I'm not so sure that I know. But I, we can say this, that Isaac turned to the right place with this problem because Genesis twenty-five twenty-one does this, and Isaac prayed to the Lord for his wife because she was barren, and the Lord granted his prayer, and Rebekah, his wife, conceived. That news brought great joy to him. But you know, having children doesn't solve marital problems, does it? In fact, sometimes they agitate it if there are problems there already. And the twins who would soon be born were only going to agitate a problem that already existed. And what might have been another problem, if if, if lack of children, but what goes even deeper than that? I'm suggesting, underlying the word suggesting, a lack of communication. A lack of communication. Most books written on Isaac and Rebecca portray her with a bubbling personality, what we would call today an extrovert who loved to talk, 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 talk. While Isaac was a man of solitude and silence. He didn't like to talk, he didn't like to communicate, he just liked to go outside, didn't like to stay home, liked to go on the field. He was seen as a hunter, but he was also seen as a man of meditation. He liked being alone with God, maybe he didn't like so much being alone with Rebecca, I don't know. But I think there was, a, there was a lack of communication as I read between the lines. Rebecca then, I think, grew bitter over this period of time. And I remember 20 years is a long time because of the lack of communion, companionship. Every woman longs for that. Men, we need to wake up to that. Wives want a man who listens and talks and shares his heart. It's hard for us to do as men. Marriage counselors say that lack of communication may be the greatest problem in marriages. Charles Stanley defines communication as to talk and listen with understanding. God well, can help any of us seek him and work through these problems if we have them. But you know, sometimes a wise person will be wise to get a third party involved. Someone who someone you trust, you know, can keep their mouth shut. But somebody that kind of helped you just walk through, resolve some of these conflicts. And there might be a third reason for the sour decline. Not only lack of children, lack of communication, but a lack of caring, a lack of caring. I did a survey of about 100 couples 40 years ago. And one of the questions I asked the wives was, what is the one thing above everything else you want from your husband? If you could say one thing. And you know what the majority came back with? I want my husband to care for me. They didn't even use, for the most part, they didn't even use the word love. I just want him to care for me. And talking and listening from your heart with each other says you care. Having children doesn't solve this problem. Finally, after 20 years of infertility... Uh, we find that Isaac prayed and Becca conceived, but she had a violent pregnancy. Listen to the words. And I'm wondering during that violent pregnancy, nine months can be a long time. I'm wondering if Isaac just didn't hear a thing she said. He's still out in the field meditating somewhere. I don't know. So she spoke to the Lord. She went to the Lord. since, If I'm reading into it, her husband listened, listen. God would listen. She went to the Lord. Genesis twenty-five twenty-three, and after she cried out to the Lord, the Lord said to her, two nations are in your womb with two people. From within you shall be divided. The one shall be stronger than the other. Here's the key. The older shall serve the younger. Who's the older? It's going to be Esau. Who's the younger? It's going to be Jacob. The older shall serve the younger. That's reversed from normal. It's the firstborn that gets the blessing. Firstborn should be the one through whom the seed should come. But God was sovereign. It was Jacob. It wasn't going to be Esau. And God makes that known to whom? To Rebekah. The younger shall serve, the elder shall serve the younger. You know what? There's not one hidden scripture she ever shared this unusual divine prophecy with Jacob, about Jacob to Isaac. Listen to Romans 9, 10 to 12. It's the only passage outside of Genesis where Rebekah is mentioned in the Bible. Because the promise is still kept a secret. Now listen. And not only so, but also when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, she was told, notice she alone, the older will serve the younger. Here is possibly the most important revelation made to them. That Jacob is the one through whom the Messiah and the blessing in the nation is going to come. Not Esau, not the firstborn. Why didn't she tell him? Why is she being so secretive? Why was it hard for her to talk to Isaac about anything? I'm conjecturing again. But I see Rebecca has gotten bitter; she's withdrawn. Isaac doesn't care. And you know what? Two can play this game. You want to be silent. You want to just keep to yourself? Okay, two can play that. I'll keep this to myself then. So I'm not going to share. You don't share with me. I'm not going to share with you. Twins were born. We find their personalities were vastly different. Genesis 25, 27, 28 says, When the boys grew up, Esau was a skillful hunter, a man of the field, while Jacob was a quiet man, dwelling in tents. Now notice next. Isaac loved Esau because he ate of his game and he was outside where Get out of the house. But Rebecca loved Jacob. Do you see what happened here? Marital problems, lack of communication, lack of caring. Thought it was lack of children. One now latches on to one and the other latches on to the other. I've got Esau, I've got Jacob. And can you imagine now, Rebecca, for the first time in 20 years, she's sitting in the kitchen table, she's having her coffee and a bagel, and there's just Jacob, he's just a mama's boy, and he's just listening, listening, and eating it all up, and they're just talking back and forth, and she's thinking, I've never had this kind of caring communication. And she just loves it. Isaac, he's out in the field with his buddy Esau. They're out there hunting venison. They're out there meditating. At least Isaac is. And now the children... That seemed to be one of the problems. The lack of children now becomes a means of tearing them either further apart. The marriage has gone sour. Because they built the marriage around children. Don't you do that? Don't you do that? If you do, you're headed for disaster. They call today gray divorce. Have you ever heard the term? Gray divorce. Gray hair. It means that one out of four divorces today is from people who have been married 25 years or longer. What happens after 25 years of marriage, usually the children are out of the house. Now all of a sudden you realize I've built my life around my kids, the kids are gone, I don't even know this person I'm living with though I've been married with them for 25 years, living in the same house but in separate lives. Now please, I'm not if some many of you have been through divorce, remarriage, death divorce God is gracious. God is forgiven. I'm just trying to deal with an ideal situation. God wants a strong, warm, loving, caring marriage, and we got to be careful that we don't let things come in, that then we're trying to deal with corrective theology instead of preventative theology. I'll skip that next story. But after 25 years, they grow apart, Kids are gone. Sexual responsibility, incompatibility becomes more pronounced because changes arise with age and the relationship with bad to worse. I close it with an end, the subversive end. That's what we call it, the subversive end. Had a tender beginning, had a sweet beginning, had a sour decline. As a subversive end. First you see deception. Chapter shows Rebecca and Jacob using carnal means to bring about spiritual results. Rebecca's eavesdropping at the tent. Notice they're in separate tents now. They're living. And she's listening to Isaac. And Isaac's talking to Esau. He says, uh, Esau, it looks like, if you read the first verses there, chapter 27, it looks like he's on his deathbed. By the way, he lived another 43 years. Milk toast Isaac, okay? So he's he's got Esau. He's now you go out in the field and get me some venison. Make me my favorite kind of stew. And he says, then I'm going to put the blessing of the firstborn upon you. Still doesn't know it's Jacob. Rebecca's listening; she's eavesdropping. She immediately goes into this deceptive plan. What she do? She brings Jacob in, tells him the plan. You're going to be—you're the one that God told me. The elder shall serve the younger. You're going to get a blessing of the firstborn nation, and the uh, the world's going to be blessed through you, Jacob. And so they got to get the goat skins and they put it on because Esau had a lot of hair on him and Jacob was pretty smooth. So when Isaac, who's blind, can't see, when he reaches up to touch him, he'll touch a hairy arm and not a soft arm he knows it was was, uh, Jacob. He puts the uh, coating on him so he smells like Esau the hunter. And then he blesses Jacob. Treachery. Deceit, duplicity. What's interesting is after Isaac gave the blessing, and then everything's exposed. Imagine how he felt, my own wife and my own son, use all this deception. They lie to me, they cheat, they're deceptive. Rebecca's never shared the truth of what God told her. It says in Genesis 27, 33, Then Isaac trembled very violently and said, Who was it then that hunted game and brought it to me, and i ate it all before, came and I have blessed him? Now notice the next words. Yes, and he shall be blessed. Listen, if God can use forgetfulness, slander, and hatred in the life of Joseph to bring about his will, he can use deceit and duplicity to also accomplish his will. Because he's sovereign. And that's exactly, And he realized for the first time, he realizes by faith, Jacob is the one through whom the blessing comes. How do I know that? I know that because he made it into the Hebrew Love and Faith Hall of Fame. 1120 says, by faith, Isaac invoked future blessings on Jacob and Esau. But it led to greater divisions. Don't have time to go into it all. Rebecca and Jacob pulled off the scheme, but you know what? Rebecca never saw her favorite son again. Never saw him again. Not only that, but Jacob and Esau hate each other. Esau wants to murder Jacob. I mean, the whole home is torn apart in conflict. So are a lot of homes today with all the divisions, lack of truthful communication. Lack of honesty, lack of integrity. Lack of intimacy. I'm not talking about physical intimacy. That's part of it. I'm talking about intimacy of character and personality. Where you share, you don't hide, you don't have secrets. You live under the same roof, but you live in your own world. Four simple conclusions. One, remove all conflicts in the home. There's another sermon itself. Restore spiritual priorities. What do I mean by that? Law of physics, law of geometry. If two objects are drawn to the same object by means, they're drawn closer together. See, and that's what God wants to happen even in courtship. is is you both seek the Lord and then as you're seeking the Lord, you're drawn closer together. What happens when I don't put the spiritual as the priority? It becomes the physical and then when the physical intimacy takes place and you have sex before marriage, which is forbidden by the word of God, then you have a cloud developing over your marriage and some of you still haven't made that right. And you know who you are. Establish a family prayer time. Number four, create a safe environment for communication. Accept each other's opinion without a put-down, every member of the family has a valuable contribution to make. Would you bow with me in prayer? Lord, thanks for the attention of your people to the Word of God. So many homes, so many different places where we're at, you know everyone here. Minister to them as only you can do by your Spirit. In Jesus' name, amen.